This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. What an honor it is to be in the Freedom Hut. I am not Buck Sexton. Uh, My name is Mike Plato. Uh, Buck and I have worked together for years and super grateful to be here. And what a, uh, I'm filling in for him today. Buck will be back tomorrow. Have no fear. But what a ridiculous time to be be alive and an important time too. Uh, I think often of the Abigail Adams quote that uh, she wrote in a letter to her husband. It's one of my favorites. She said, these are the times in which a genius would wish to live. It's not in the still calm of life or the repose of a Pacific station that great characters are formed. The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. Great necessities call out great virtues. I know that's what Buck stands for every single day. And uh, hopefully we can do a little more of that for the next couple hours here. Right now we are living in a, in a perfect storm of Postmodernism, postmodern philosophy, philosophy, Marxism. You throw in there a little critical race theory. That's the root of Black Lives Matter. And the three of these explain everything that we're seeing right now in our culture. And today, we're going to touch on um, all of these a little bit. On my show, I host out in uh, San Diego. I'm on right before Buck. We've had uh, we've been analyzing the philosophies of postmodernism, the philosophers of postmodernism that have led us to this point. But you can't just stop there. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've been doing also a, a deep dive on the philosophies and principles and virtues that this country is built on, right? So we need to know not only what we're fighting against, but of course also what we're fighting for. So we're going to do some of that today as well. Let's start here. Heard an interview the other day with Chloe Valderay. She is fantastic. The more I'm hearing from her, the more I love her. She uh, has this thing called the theory of enchantment. And it's based on two premises, premises. First, that we live in an already atomized, not item, but atom, like an atom, like, like a single individual thing, an atomized and isolated country, a divided country already. And then you throw on top of that a spiritual malnourishment. I love that concept. We have a spiritual malnourishment. Well, I hate the concept, but you, I like her def- definition of it. Spiritual malnourishment in this country, and it manifests itself in many different ways. And one of them is this woke, anti-racist cult that we've seen. We're going to talk a lot about that today as well. But we we are living in a crisis of meaning in this country. We don't know who we are. And our education system has purposefully, and we're going to talk about this mostly in the next hour, has purposefully, intentionally taught kids that we are not only like, like not a great country, but we're the worst country. <laughs> we're the absolute worst country in the world. So younger people in particular, but everyone, uh, many older people, are grasping at tra- straws, trying to figure out a purpose. I mean, we're telling kids from a younger and younger age that this country is rotten at its core. From its founding, that's the 1619 Project. We're telling kids at a younger and younger age that your life is hopeless. That's systemic racism. The system is stacked against you no matter what you do. You live in a white supremacist nation and you will always be oppressed. 
And we're telling our kids from a younger and younger age that life is not only hopeless, but meaningless. There is no God. There's no afterlife. This is all there is. Racist, hopeless, and meaningless. Who who thinks this is going to go well? (laughs) Racist, hopeless, and meaningless. That's what we're teaching our kids. People obviously are going to be miserable with that toxic stew preached to them everywhere you turn. I mean, if you think this country and your life is you know racist, hopeless, and meaningless, why wouldn't you burn buildings to the ground? What, what else? What is it going to do? It's sad. Our nation's spiritual malnourishment. Because of that, we need to. People are trying to fill that space that's made for God. People are trying to fill it with something. An identity that used to be rooted in the Christian faith is, is now rooted in my race, my identity, my intersectionality. And we just fight each other because we're all in our individual tribes. It is uh, it's really sad that our country has, has turned into this. It doesn't have to stay like this, though, and this is the things that we're going to talk about about how to get out of this and what, what, we, what we should be united behind instead. But let me make one last point on this. Men in particular, men in particular are checked out and need to step up. I read a study from a couple psychologists the other day, and they argue that men, two things, men have a desire, like it's just a natural desire for conflict, healthy conflict, struggle, and accomplishment. But instead of going out and doing something productive, so many men just play video games. So it's fake war. These video games are designed to give you this gradual feeling of accomplishment over time and make you feel like you're, you're doing something. But you're not. And, and so many young people, young men in particular, are thinking, well, I don't have to build a thing. I don't have to perfect a skill. I can just build something in this video game. I don't need to improve a marketable skill or a soul-nourishing skill. I can just numb that urge by getting a new high score. I can fake my brain into thinking that I'm a man with fake war on a computer screen. That's a spiritual malnourishment right there. Second thing is men have a desire to seek a sexual partnership. Men have a natural urge to have sex, and women used to not give it up and would force the man for everyone's best interest to channel that sex drive into courtship, into being a gentleman, into proving that he can provide for her, into honoring her, into helping her, and giving her what she desires for her life, right? These, these all led to a greater social good for everyone. But now in our modern world, postmodernism, instead of dealing with all the, the woman's crazy demands, you can just watch porn. It's free, it's instant, it's online, done, problem solved, back to my video game. I say that because dads, I'm, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old. Dads, if, if you can raise your boys to not watch porn or play video games, and instead channel those natural urges of accomplishment uh, and, and a sex drive into skills and courtship, They'll, 
they'll have a superpower <laughs> for everyone else. They will be living with a superpower amongst the masses. Do not let your kids fall prey to our postmodern culture. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk specifically about postmodern math and how the left is taking over not only history, that's obvious, but also math. You're thinking, math? How do you take over math? We'll do that in a little bit, but don't let your kids fall for this, this culture that they're growing up in. It is toxic, and it doesn't, you don't have to. It's, it's, you just need to be aware of how bad it is and then make the decision not to be tossed about by the wind. Okay, let me, let me change gears here a bit. I want to talk for a minute here, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back, and, and I want to play. After hours and hours of deliberation, I found the number one all-time best Jordan Peterson clip. And this video has only got 6,000 views. I don't know why it doesn't have 6 million views, but we'll play that coming next. But I want to talk about personal responsibility because this is another major missing component here. So on my, my show the other day, uh, I talked to Professor um, Azarad from Hillsdale College. And he said something that struck with me, and I've thought about it every day since, so I want to go over it here. We were talking about true equality, like as our founding fathers envisioned it, as opposed to um, equity as our woke progressives push it today, which is very different, is equality of outcome. So what did our founding fathers view about equality and what are, what are the progressives today think of equality, equality of outcome, very different. And we talked about how uh, in a country with equality of opportunity among people who have the ability to reason, there also has to be responsibility that comes along with that. So I asked him about what are the responsibilities, what are your responsibilities as a citizen in a free country? And he said, Slater, imagine it like this. Imagine concentric circles. And in the middle, you have the individual, you. Then you have family, community, country, and on the outside, the human race. The further out you go, the fewer responsibilities you have. Maximum responsibility for yourself, the further out you go, the fewer you have. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you have no responsibility for the human race or you hate the human race by no, no stretch of the imagination. It's just a fewer responsibilities than yourself first. Now, here's the deal. The progressives, like everything, have it backwards. Their worldview is that you need to first be responsible for the whole human race. That's why you hear them say, I'm a global citizen. But in the process of doing that, or at least virtue signaling that they're doing that, they're ignoring the people around them. You see it rampant in California, right? People talking about, you know, the, the you know, self-righteous global citizen, but homelessness is out of control. And then even worse than that, no personal accountability, no personal responsibility either. I want to talk more about that next. And we'll play this uh, amazing Jordan Peterson clip. We'll do this next. Uh, I'm Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton today. Let me finish up this point here. Uh, Buck will be back tomorrow, of course. So concentric circles inside individual, family, then community, country, and human race. The further out you go from the center, the less responsibility you have. And the postmodernists today, everything's backwards. They would argue that first, your, your first responsibility, or at least their rhetoric is, your first responsibility is the human race. I'm a world citizen. I'm a global citizen, all that nonsense. And then they work backwards. And of course, because it's backwards, everything's screwed up. So they're, they're a world citizen, but they hate their country. They ignore their community. They have broken families, and they, leave, they live uh, miserable individual lives. <laughs> to be a little cynical, but that's how that goes. I'm debating whether or not to do a biography of Marx today in our short time together. 
But Karl Marx and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the most influential Enlightenment philosophers who we see major ramifications today, these two are perfect examples. These guys were broken, cruel, narcissistic, nearly psychopaths. So many of uh, Rousseau's contemporaries called him a monster. A monster. And Marx was the same. These people did not work on their individual selves. Rousseau abandoned all five of his infant children at the local orphanage where two-thirds of them died before the age of uh, one. Terrible person. But what he did, because he didn't work on himself and his family, he elevated the state in the name of the human race. Right? So they say they're putting humanity first, but it's impossible to do that. It's too vast. So what they end up doing is putting themselves first. And it's just narcissism on parade. And, and um, Marx was an amazing example of that. All right, let me give you an example of this in action. It's my favorite Jordan Peterson clip. So he's in Australia doing some show. And this woman asks him about these big global things. Right? Big global, big, big in things that are too massive for me to fix on my own. Things that are well out of our control, as she says. She has this line, she says, you know, you, you Jordan Peterson, you talk about individual responsibility, but most of us are never going to be able to afford to have all these assets to have responsibility over. So you can see, even she's framing it as, it's all about the outer circle, the humanity, the human race circle, denying even the existence of the inner circle of personal responsibility. It doesn't even exist. So his first answer is, well, those things that you're worried about are not as far out of your control as you think. And then here's what he says next. Clip one. Well, fundamentally, I'm a psychologist, and my experience has been that people can do a tremendous amount of good for themselves and for the people who are immediately around them by looking to their own inadequacies and their own flaws and the things that they're not doing in their lives and starting to build themselves up as more powerful individuals. And if they're capable of doing that, and then they're capable of expanding their career. And if they're capable of expanding their career and their competence, then they're capable of taking their place in the community as effective leaders. And then they're capable of making wise decisions instead of unwise decisions when it comes to making collective political decisions. I'm not suggesting in the least and have never suggested that there's no domain for social action. I'm suggesting that people who don't have their own houses in order should be very careful before they go about reorganizing the world, which happens in many ways. And she, I wish you could see her. She shakes her head in disgust. Like, no, no way. <laughs> she hates that answer. Because she wants, she wants to abdicate all of her personal responsibility. No, you don't understand, Jordan. These, these problems are way out of my control. And he's like, no, no, no. Focus on you. The immense amount of good that you can do yourself and then, and then the people around you. So you work and you prove yourself, work on your flaws. Then you can expand your career in the next concentric circle. Then you can take your place in the community as an effective leader, the next concentric circle. Then you can make wise political decisions about our nation, the next circle. Right? So he's, just talking, he's, he's starting from the inside as we should and working his way out. And this, this progressive woman, she, it, it disgusts her. Now this is the best part of the clip right now. This is the follow-up. The host asks a question. And this is my favorite Jordan Peterson clip of all time. Here it is. Person believes that the uh, climate, the global warming um, problem on the climate, is something that needs to be tackled quickly, and they can't wait until they grow up and become prime ministers to do it. Do do you think collective responsibility overrides individual responsibility in a huge issue like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I don't. I, I think that generally, I think that generally, I think that generally people, I think generally people have things that are more within their personal purview that are more difficult to deal with and that they're avoiding and that generally the way they avoid them is by adopting uh, pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues so that they look good to their friends and their neighbors. Oh. Oh. <laughs> That's so good. First, I just one time in my life, I want to be able to answer the question like he did. Would just no. <laughs> no. I want to have as much confidence and clarity in the truth where I can just no. All right, we got to do this. I was going back and forth on doing this, but I think we should do it. Uh, next half hour, we'll take the time. I want to talk about Karl Marx. Karl Marx is the man, right? You hear everyone talk about Marxism and the Black Lives Matter activists. They're Marxists. They, they say it. They say they're trained Marxists. Words thrown around all the time. But who was Karl Marx? The guy. Who was Karl? <laughs> the man, the person. The narcissist, entitled, cruel, arrogant, egomaniac Karl Marx. His life is entirely projecting his own insecurities and his own entitlements and his own desire to not pay rent and his own desire to not pay back his debts. It's projecting all of that on the human race. Karl Marx is a person who is avoiding, had avoided dealing with the difficult personal issues in his life. And instead, as Jordan Peterson so brilliantly put, has adopted pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues so that he could look good to his friends and neighbors. Unfortunately, he started Marxism, which led to the death of 100 million people. But how much other destruction, destructive forces do we see out there today from people who have the same issue? How much of all of this that we're seeing today, how much of all of this is simply that? Okay, we'll do it next. Call Marx. My name is Mike Slater. Filling in for the great Buck Sexton. It's the Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Mike Slater. Filling in for the great Buck Sexton. He will be back tomorrow, though. Uh, let's do this. Let's buckle up. See if we can fit this in the few minutes we have here in this hour. Um... When you think of Karl Marx, the man, what do you think of? I mean, we hear about Marxism all the time. You know, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist group. They're Marxist organizers. You know, we, we know a little bit about Marxism, but who, who was Karl Marx? I've never thought of him, to be honest. I, never, I think we've all seen the picture of him. Right, bushy, white hair, big, giant, unkempt beard. If you ask me... Maybe a couple months ago, I would have been like, oh, he's like some Russian politician or something. I, I think Lenin, Stalin, Marx. I put them all in the same category. Uh, Karl Marx was born in Germany, radicalized in Paris, lived the rest of his life in England. It had nothing to do with Russia. Uh, and not only was he not even a politician, he never had a job in his entire life, which we'll get to in a second. But I think it's important to know who this guy was because his ideology has resulted in the death of a hundred million people. Right? His ideology has spawned some pretty, some bad fruit, you could say. 
And I think the more you learn about him, the more it all makes sense. So a couple points on Karl Marx. He was entitled, born to a wealthy family, but he was always broke. Spent all of his family's money and kept begging for more. He only saw his family in terms of financial transactions. Who would die next so that he could inherit more money? 1852, he uh, wrote about the good news of the illness of his wife's indestructible uncle and said, if that dog dies now, I will be out of trouble financially. Now, this is a couple years after, 1849, his mom, who he hated, gave him enough money from his future inheritance to live comfortably for years. It lasted one year. And this is what he said. He said, although they are quite rich, my family has placed difficulty in my way, which have temporarily placed me in an embarrassing situation. That is such a telling sentence. It's always someone else's fault. How much of that do we see today where it's always someone else's fault? And see how it's not that his mom took money from him. It's the not giving him money is someone placing him in an embarrassing situation, putting him in a burden on him. Not giving his, him money is putting, him, is putting a burden on, him, burden on him. Isn't that amazing? Sounds familiar with entitled people today? Not giving me what's mine is hurting me when it's really not even yours. Both families, his family and his wife's family, cut them both out of their lives because of their doctrines, what they believed, and, and their prolonged dependencies. Marx never had a job, ever, ever in his life, never had a job. He, invo- he uh, uh, survived entirely on allowances and inheritances and gifts from his family and his wife's family in particular. His wife's family was very wealthy. He lived in the slums of London, could barely afford rent, and some, most times just didn't pay rent, but was evicted multiple times. Uh, could barely afford groceries or bills. One of his kids died among the squalor of his home as an infant even though the money that Engels, his partner in crime, who we'll get to in a minute here, Engels gave him money, and that money was enough for a lower middle-class lifestyle. He, Engels gave Marx three times the income of an unskilled worker. Three times the income, but he still lived in, in uh, abject poverty. Do so you see the poetry here? He never worked a day in his life, but he was given three times the wages of an unskilled laborer. Free money for doing nothing wasted at all. 1864, he got an inheritance that was 10 times what he lived on annually. He was back in debt in four years. Okay, Karl Marx was terrible with money, as Marxists today also are. Now, why did he hate capitalism? Well, it's obvious. Because he was always in debt, he had creditors that were always hounding him. That's why he hated capitalism. He hated any system where he had to pay people back. And he hated any system where he owed someone rent. (laughs) He wanted everything to be free always. Is there any surprise that the guy who hated paying people back and never paid his rent and was evicted from multiple apartments in multiple countries hated capitalism and landlords? Now, I say he hated capitalism, but um, he didn't really. <laughs> um, his partner in crime, Friedrich Engels, he hated his dad, but uh, his dad owned factories, a couple different factories in different countries, and Engels 
worked as a manager at one of those factories. And it was from that money, Engels bankrolled all of Marx's writings. So think about that. Marx's writings about tearing down capitalism were paid for by capitalism, by a capitalist, Engels' dad. But that hypocrisy shouldn't be surprising either. It's true today among his followers as well, right? And how many of the, the progressives Marxists say, like, well, I'm going to write about how terrible capitalism is on my Apple laptop in Starbucks with free Wi-Fi, blah, blah, on daddy's dime. So Engels, he never really worked today of his life either. He was a spoiled uh, owner's son, never worked, just collected his check. He called his job forced labor. Obviously had no idea yet what forced labor would come to mean in the communist countries that use Marxism as their foundation. Isn't that, that's like a haunting. He called his cushy job as the owner's son that he never really even worked at. He called that forced labor. And the philosophy these guys came up with that then used to create countries that used actual forced labor. Amazing. Marx was never grateful uh, just a narcissist, egomaniac, zero sympathy for other people. He had no friends. Uh, he was never invited to any academic anything. That's another thing. I, I, I think I had this impression that he was like this like a, like a like renowned academic. No, he was com- virtually unknown in his lifetime. Never, like, like the great, the truly great intellectuals of his time never, never wrote about him, never met with him, never nothing. Thomas Sowell, in his book Marxism, called him a, a demonic personality. He was in Paris, uh, and that's when he began to meet with other radicals and, and really started his, his writings. Uh, one radical in the group called it a crowd, uh, he had a falling out with the, this group, he called it a crowd of godless, self-appointed gods. Godless, self-appointed gods. These are some quotes from fellow revolutionaries of his. And these weren't critics. Again, there were no critics. No one knew them, but these are fellow revolutionaries. If his, Karl Marx, if Karl Marx's heart had matched his intellect and his heart had as much love as hate, I would have walked through fire with him. But a most dangerous personal damnation has eaten away all the good in him. Here's another one. Never, I've never seen a man whose bearing was so provoking and intolerable to no opinion that was different from his did he give an honor of even a condescending consideration? How, how the Marxists today follow this to a T. Everyone who contradicted him, he treated with abject contempt. That's cancel culture. Every opinion he did not like, he answered with either biting scorn at the unfathomable ignorance that had prompted it or with aspersion on the motives of him who had advanced it. Exact same of his followers today. He, he would glare at anyone who challenged his opinion and he would say, I will annihilate you. So, that's Karl Marx. <laughs> we'll uh, bring it to today. Coming up next, Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Hello, Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton today. Buck will be back tomorrow. We just spent nine minutes or so talking about Karl Marx, the man, who he was, a little bit of his biography. And I hope it's as glaringly obvious to you as it is to me that everything that the super woke left Marxists are today fits in line perfectly with Karl Marx, the person. Today, entitled Narcissistic Egomaniacs, looking for excuses to blame others for their misfortunes that, that seem to just follow them everywhere they go. When not given money, oh, well, that's a tool of oppression used against me by my family, who I wish would just die so I can get my inheritance already. Wasteful of other people, of other people's money. Impossible to work with and get along with. Callous, lacking complete empathy for others. Almost cruel. Angles, uh, when his mistress died, he wrote him a, a letter that was so bitingly cruel. Angles wrote back and like, like, so like, what's your problem? And that was almost the end of their relationship. Uh, Marx was callous when his own children died. Three of his children died in infancy and one at the age of eight. And there's an asterisk to that, which we'll get to in a second, but just, just no regard for that. He never finished any project. Uh, you know, people talk about Das Kapital. That was like his grand work, three, three volumes. Engels put that together 10 years after Marx died, or Marx finished the first volume. It took another 10 years before Engels could scrap together all of Marx's notes to put together the next two. But uh, Marx never finished any project. He, it wasn't even that he was a procrastinator. He was, it was way more pathological than that. And on top of that, Marx, these both of them were flaming racists. Which the Black Lives Matter activists are today as well. Not to mention anti-Semites. But just one example of that. Marx's son-in-law was running for a city council seat in Paris. And in this district, uh, well, let me say this first. So his son-in-law was running for this, this seat. His son-in-law was part black or whatever we're supposed to say today. Uh, and Engels, uh, sorry, in this district that he was running for had the zoo. The zoo, the Paris Zoo was there. So Engels wrote to Marx, being in his quality as a N-word, a degree nearer to the rest of the animal kingdom than the rest of us, he is undoubtedly the most appropriate representative of that district. Good night. That'll get anyone else canceled. But not Engels, not Marx, no. Now, I should note this as well. Throughout all of his self-imposed poverty, he did have a maid who lived with him. He never paid her. Never paid her a penny. He did, though, get her pregnant. She, the, the maid lived in the home with his wife, obviously, too. Got her pregnant hid her pregnancy when you couldn't when they couldn't hide it anymore he blamed Engels Engels was this big womanizer so he took took the fall Marx forced his maid to give the child up to another family and this boy was allowed to visit his mother from time to time Freddie was his name he was allowed to visit his mother but he had to come through the back door only Karl Marx never saw him once Never saw him. Abandoned his own son, the father of the revolution.
abandoned his own son. No different, though, than Rousseau. I'll just share the very short of Rousseau here because i got to run, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau, like the father of the French Revolution, which is not something you'd want to be known as the father of, um, probably the most influential philosopher in how we educate our children today and how we view our children today, very romantic concept, but enough time to go into that. But anyway, super influential guy. He had five children. Every, he was a horrible person, like, like the worst. Made Karl Marx look like a saint. Had five children, and he forced his wife to abandon every single one of them off at the local orphanage. At this orphanage at that time, the 1700s, two-thirds of them died within the first year. Only, I think, 7 or 14% made it to adulthood, and even those were just beggars for the rest of their lives. So that's the guy we're taking child-rearing advice from? The guy who abandoned all five of his kids at the local orphanage? We're going we're gonna to model our education system based off of his writings? That guy? It's the same thing with Marx. We're going to follow that guy's advice? I haven't even gotten to Marx and how uh, miserable his wife was. Marx wrote to Engels that uh, she said, he said, every day she tells me she wishes she were in her grave. Why would, you, why would we ever follow this guy for anything? He's a terrible person. And amazingly, his ideas are even worse. He's got 100 million deaths to show for it. But it explains everything today. And this is it. And this is why when everyone says, you know, oh, this is Marxist and, and all this, this is what it is. The Communist Manifesto, he says, uh, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and pleban, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, there it is, oppressor and oppressed, who stand in constant opposition to one another. Everything is a battle between the oppressors and the oppressed. Everything. Every relationship. So what the postmodernists did, and we'll talk more about this in the next hour, is they took just a, from a class perspective that Marx did and put it in everything. Man versus woman. Battle. Straight versus gay. Cisgendered versus transgendered. Black versus white. Everything is seen as a battle. But a parent versus child. Teacher and student. Everything's a battle. Where Marx said, and Marx actually didn't say this, almost all of Marx's famous lines he stole from other people. One of them is, working men of all countries unite. He didn't actually say that, or he didn't say it first. Uh, but working men of all countries unite. Today, it's all the oppressed people of America unite. What a sad way to view the world. But of course it was picked up. Of course it spread. People like Karl Marx, bitter, angry losers, find great appeal in blaming others for their problems. Coming up next, I want to talk about the Marxist takeover of your kids' math class, K through 12. This is not even like, well, one day maybe they will. I'm going to look at a specific K through 12 curriculum, curricula, and textbooks to uh, prove this point. And also, uh, this postmodern aspect of, well, what what is math? You say two plus two equals four, but what are numbers? We'll do that next. I'm Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. America's the greatest country in the world. What an honor to be here in the Freedom Hut. Mike Slater from San Diego, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck will be here tomorrow. Buck and I have worked together for years and years and years. I'm super grateful for him, just him in general, period. And then for him letting me be here with you today. So thank you. Um, let's talk. So we just finished up a half hour talking about Karl Marx and Marxism, but specifically Karl Marx, the man. Uh, I want to take that and talk about education, our education system today. And I don't mean to be rude. I mean, we just met and all. But if you're sending your kids to public school, you're out of your mind. I don't know a worse place to drop your kids off for six plus hours a day. It's one thing if they just didn't do a good job teaching your kids. Like that was my public school experience. I went to a good public school, didn't learn a thing. Fine. But now the entire system is actively teaching your kids Marxism. And it's infused in everything. And that's the point I'm going to prove here. And, and after you hear this, you can decide if this is if that's okay with you. <laughs> and then by all, if you think it is, by all means, drop your kids off at this building. Uh, I want to talk about math. I think we can all see how the left, we, we can understand how and why the left would want to take over and rewrite history. That's the 1619 Project. How the left can you know, teach Keynesian economics and stuff like that. But math, how can the left take over math class? It's 2 plus 2 equals 4. Where's the room for Marxism? Well, it's actually two ways. So we're going to split up this hour into two different uh, branches here. Two ways that the left takes over math. First is Marxism, and then the second is postmodernism. So let's start with Marxism here. Uh, first, I'll give you a little example of this. This is a nice uh, on-the-street interview, man-on-the-street interview with two young teachers. Clip three. So I was a seventh grade civics uh, teacher, government teacher, and she is an elementary school teacher. What year did we get our independence? <laughs> Seventeen something. We're teachers. I actually don't teach what's in our curriculum. I'm teaching children social studies that's not in our curriculum, teaching them things about how to be an anti-racist. I taught them about protesting. I taught them about Black Lives Matter. I don't, I don't, know, when they, they don't know when the country was founded. Okay. Uh, now, she says she teaches off curriculum, and, and a lot of them do, but there's also a curriculum for this. It's called Ethnic Studies. Just read in my local newspaper, the San Diego Union Tribune. Uh, this is a student. She's now at Stanford, but when she was a sophomore, she started an Ethnic Studies class in her school here in San Diego. Uh, and She just wrote this. She said, Eurocentric curricula and colonized classroom structures. That's where the teacher... Last, so last segment, we talked about oppressor versus the oppressed. Every single dynamic is oppressed versus oppressor. Uh, or oppressive versus oppressed, and even teacher-student. So that is a colonized classroom structure where the teacher's in charge and the student is, from my perspective, by definition, ignorant of what we're learning. Right? But you got to flip around. That's, that's just your colonized thing. you got to decolonize your mind, man. And these colonized classroom structures perpetuate racism and harm generations of young people of color. Schooling that erases the perspectives of our communities is a product of institutional racism, colonialism, and white supremacy. There's your ethnic studies right there. Now, again, history class, I get it, but how is it possible in math? So there's a textbook called Rethinking Mathematics, Teaching Social Justice by the Numbers. So this book calls out, I'm only quoting from the book, calls out traditional math instruction as, quote, immoral in a world as unjust as ours. 
Traditional math is, is said to be bad for students and bad for society. And you think, what could possibly be, be wrong? What, what's so problematic with traditional math? Well, one is the curriculum's fetish, her, their word, fetish for the right answer. Right answers in square, scare quotes in the, in the textbook, right answers. Uh, math problems with clear-cut solutions. <laughs> clear-cut solutions give a false picture of how mathematics can help us in the real world. Traditional math, with its fetish for the right answer and obsession with clear-cut solutions, is said to be a white man's thing. Okay. So the first branch of how they've taken over math is to infuse Marxism into the math class. So we have math, but... Well, here are the chapters. Home buying while brown or black... In this chapter, kids are, de uh, are to develop an understanding of the socio-political, cultural, economic, and historical dynamics of racism, along with their interconnections, and appreciate the complexity of different forms of racism, structural, institutional, and individual. Again, math class, living algebra, living wage. One section, I can't survive on 827, using math to investigate minimum wage and CEO pay. So you know that's just going to be all about income inequality. Another chapter, sweatshop accounting, when equal isn't fair. Racism and stop and frisk. The square root of a fair share. This is your kid's math class. The square root of a fair share. The geometry of inequality. That chapter is all about redlining. Uh, plotting inequality, building resistance. I don't even know. Uh, here's one. Math, maps, and misrepresentation. Myth misrepresentation. Uh, here's a teaching suggestion. Map of territory that Mexico lost to the United States. Okay, so we're going to study math by calculating the, the area of land that the white man stole from Mexico. So you see how they infuse Marxism in it? Here's all, here's student, here's America, but here's the land that the white man stole from Mexico. Let's calculate, let's use math to calculate that land mass. Uh, this is a good one. This one's called Write the Truth, Presidents and Slaves. This whole math chapter is about, uh, you're supposed to calculate the percentage of our presidents who are slave owners. So there's the infusion of social justice into math class. It's not teaching math for its own sake. It's not teaching math for how to build a bridge or calculate a physics equation or use math to understand the golden mean that was used to build the Parthenon. It's about racism and minimum wage and unions and how capitalism is terrible and how the white man stole Mexico. Now, here's the kicker of the whole thing. After every lesson, I'll give you an example. Here's one. So one lesson is uh, every student gets a map of the world and 25 chips. And the kid is supposed to distribute the chips based on what you think the population distribution of the world is. So we're going to put more chips on China and India and stuff like that. And then they would, the teacher would show you what the real distribution of people is. And then the kid is, again, to distribute the chips based on how they feel the GDP distribution is around the world. And then you, you look at what it really is, right? And you put all that together. And then at the end, here it is, write an essay on how this makes you feel. How it makes you feel. Now, because the written word is a white man's master's tool against the oppressed. And we need to decolonize grammar, which is something we'll talk about later. You, instead of writing an essay, 
because that's racist. You can also make a poster about how this makes you feel. I'll tell you, if this was an option when I was in high school, I would be the king of posters. I, I would have never written an essay in my entire life. I can't even fathom my calculus class making a poster about how calculus makes me feel. Uh, so here's that one lesson. Bring students back together for a whole class discussion. Have each group share their posters and perspectives. Connect their emotions and feelings of fairness to the information on the chart. Questions. Should wealth be distributed equally? Who do you think decides how wealth is distributed? I guarantee there's not going to be any teacher who's going to be there and say, oh, in capitalism, no one decides how wealth is distributed. How does the unequal distribution of wealth affect the power that groups of people hold? Again, to the left, to Marxists, it's always about power. Ask them what role they think colonialism has played in creating this inequality. So again, it's always the white man's fault, even in math class. But here's my big takeaway. Math class, you're, you're supposed to... Kids leave math with a feeling that things are unfair, that the system is unfair, that the rich are exploiting their power, or explo exploiting the poor, among nations and, and, and within America. And it's all about feelings. And of course it's about feelings, because in the postmodern world, there is no reason or logic or even reality at all. In a postmodern world, where, as you saw, the, the Smithsonian said, rational, objective, linear thinking is a characteristic of white supremacy and white culture. So if you don't have that, what are you left with? Your feelings. That's it. Even in math class. So that's the Marxism. Let's bring in the postmodernism next for the one-two punch. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton's Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks to Buck for, uh, for letting me fill in. He'll be back in tomorrow. So we're talking about education. We're talking about math class specifically and how the left is taking over math class to destroy from within. They're doing it two different ways. First, infusing Marxism into the classroom, which we just talked about. And then also uh, postmodernism, which is much more of what is... What are numbers? Who's really to say? So you see the difference between the two? So Mark, the, the first part, the Marxism branches, let's calculate the percentage of presidents who owned slaves. How does that make you feel? And then postmodernism is, what are numbers and addition? And, you know, this is just your experience in one way that you can interpret. <laughs> so you put both those things together and you're like, well, what, what, what? But that's all you got. All you got is the feels. How do you feel about this? There's no such thing as reason or logic or objective truth. So math class is all about your feeling. L let me focus on that. I want to save the postmodern post aspect for the next segment because I, I want to have time to uh, really dive deep into that. But let's talk about this feeling thing. So there's a billion examples of this. But Vermont Law School, it's like a week or so ago. Vermont Law School, they have a mural highlighting the state's role of during the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement, which is great. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate and to have a mural about. But people objected. They wanted it down because it made them feel uncomfortable. Now, one of the 
things we say on the time of my show is uh, you can't tell the difference between a woke person and a clan member. Can't tell the difference. And this is a perfect example of that, right? You would think a clan member would look at a mural about the abolition movement and the Underground Railroad and say, ooh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. But it's not. It's a woke Black Lives Matter activist who looks at it and says it makes them feel uncomfortable. They're the same. Funny how that works. So the mural was painted in 1993. Obviously, the school signed off on it. Uh, here's the, the head of the school. Um, more than 25 years ago, the mural was offered to and accepted by the school with the intention of honoring African-Americans, blah, blah, blah. However, the depictions of the African-Americans on the mural are offensive to many in our community. And upon reflection and consultation, we have determined that the mural is not consistent with our school's commitment to fairness, inclusion, diversity, and social justice. Accordingly, we have decided to paint over the mural. That's amazing. People caving to these fools. Now, there's a ton we can focus on there, but I just want to focus on the, um, the feels. Actually, I got, a, I got a minute to this. We got a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, diversity, inclusion, and equity. A quick sidebar here, Your Honor. Diversity, inclusion, equity, die statements. You hear uh, your work and many other companies talking about their commitment to diversity, inclusion, and equity. In woke speak, every single one of these is the opposite of what you think they are and what they've always been. So diversity, to you and me, it means a, a people from different backgrounds with different experiences and perspectives and viewpoints all coming together in a group. That's diversity. That's great. To the woke left, diversity means people coming from a variety of oppressed groups who have a uniformity of opinion, a uniformity of worldview, and that's the Marxist worldview. So it's not, diversity is not diversity. It's um, uniformity, the opposite. Inclusion, we think inclusion means welcoming. But the left says that it's welcoming, but not if you have particular opinions, which happen to be your opinions and Buck's opinions and my opinions. So far from being inclusive, it's actually exclusive. It's the opposite. And then equity is not uh, equality of opportunity, which we think it is. It's equality of outcome, which is the opposite of uh, equity. It's actually discrimination. So diversity, inclusion, equity actually means uniformity, exclusion, and discrimination. Minor detail. Anyway, um, here's an example of feeling. So people feel like we have just this massive mass incarceration problem in America. There's a perception of mass incarceration and it makes people feel bad. And people will say, you know, half of prisoners are, on dr are minor, minor nonviolent drug charges. That's what you always hear say. Half of prisoners. What they really mean to say is half of federal prisoners are on drug charges, are in jail on drug charges. And we can address that, right? There's definitely room for talk there. But what they don't tell you, and what they won't tell you in these ethnic studies classes or math class, although this would be something good to study in math, is federal inmates only make up 12% of America's prisoners. So half of 12% is not a lot. Among these, most prisoners are in state prisons. Among those prisoners, drug offenses are only 15%. So who makes up the rest of the prison? Well, murderers are 14%. Rape or assault, sexual assault is 13%. Robbery is 13%. Aggravated or simple assault is 10%. Burglary is 10%. So drug is right there with everything. 45% of those in state prisons for drug are there for less than a year. And even among those uh, 15%, 
almost all of them are there for worse things. They just took a plea bargain and got the more serious charges dropped as a part of the negotiation, right? So they got arrested for five serious things and a drug charge, and they just took the drug charge as just a plea deal. So now it says they're in jail for nonviolent drug-related, but that's not. they're there for much more serious things, or they did much more serious things to get them arrested in the first place. Also, don't equate drug charges with nonviolent. People put those two things together, but three-quarters, 75% of released drug offenders are rearrested for a non-drug crime later. And in Baltimore, in 2017, there were 118 homicide suspects. 118 homicide suspects in, in Baltimore. 70% of them had previously been arrested on drug charges. And they were also arrested on other charges as well, even though they pled down, right? So there's no surprise that these people are also very violent. And there's actually quite a bit of math there. Understanding numbers and percentages and, you know, what's, what's half of 14% or, right? But we're not teaching math. We're not teaching kids how to interpret these numbers and this data objectively and dispassionately. In fact, again, rational, nonlinear, objective thinking and obsession with data are all aspects of a white supremacist culture. Instead, we're pumping kids on how evil the white man is, how terrible America is, and how does that make you feel? I want to come back and we'll get to the postmodern part. Okay, so Marxism, I think you see the infusion of Marxism in math class. But now postmodernism is, is what, it, what, is, what is math? And I got, I, I'll tell you what, we'll come back. I'll play a video just to prove that this is a real thing because it's so unfathomable. We can't even like, like, what are you talking about, Slater? I'll play a video from a uh, public school in New York City, K through five, that this is from their promotional video. It's like, hey, come to our school. Look how great our school is. <laughs> and they talk about postmodern math. I will prove that next. My name is Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton Show, spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton here in the Freedom Hut. Thanks, Buck, for letting me, uh, let me hang out. Uh, we're talking about Marxism. We, we went through a whole biography of Karl Marx in the first hour. Uh, so we're taking that Marxism in the last half hour. We talked about how they've infused Marxism into math class. And now we want to talk about the, the second pillar, or the second approach they're taking to tear down the pillar, I should say, of math. And that is postmodernism. So Marxism is, let's calculate the percentage of presidents who owned slaves. And it aren't, isn't America such a terrible, awful, horrible place in math class? How does that make you feel? Postmodernism is, what, what are numbers? And who are you even to say what, a, what the right answer is, blah, blah. That's, so this is uh, a New York City public school, uh, PS63. is a K-5 through school. Uh, sit back and, and weep. The ESI Creates has been an amazing opportunity for our school to have time dedicated to come together to talk about how do we create anti-racist schools. I see teaching as a very political act. When we are engaging with our students, whether it's on social justice issues or multicultural issues or culturally relevant teaching, I see that as foundational to all learning. We are learning a lot about like different issues in this world and like um, 
what's happening around, like, we're mostly thinking about, like, racial and culture in my class and how we could change the future. We have all of these different people that are activists. We have um, gay people, we have transgender people, and we have people that are taking action, and we're learning how to take action in social studies now. We've seen our students become empowered. We've seen them see that even at the age of four that they can take an active role and be activists. And so it's through this work that we realize that education without this conversation isn't going to make a difference for our children. Learning how to take action at the age of four? How about that poor little girl? Again, it's K through five, so... How old are you in fifth grade? Ten? Was an eight, nine-year-old saying, we have gay people and transgendered people in the classroom. Oh. We don't have time to go into it now, but one of the, again, cultural Marxists view everything as a power dynamic between the oppressors and the oppressed, even uh, parents and kids. Parents are the oppressors, kids are the oppressed. So one of the ways that they're destroying our culture is by inverting that. Um, and one way to do that is by destroying the innocence of childhood. And one way to do that is drag queen story hour and having drag queens come and speak to them about activism, stuff like that, to eight-year-olds and younger, surely. Right? So that way the kids can go back and scold the parents for not being woke enough. And, and that gives more power to the children and upends the dynamic, uh, the oppressive relationship between parent and child. Anyway, that's the root behind all that. Did you see the Netflix uh, show, uh, Babysitter's Club? Season one, episode four, Babysitter's Club, one is like for like 13-year-old girls or whatever. And one of the whole episodes is about uh, like a little eight-year-old boy is now a girl and she's in the hospital and uh, the, the 13-year-old. So the doctor nurse comes in and refers to her as a boy and she's really a girl now. So the, the babysitter says, excuse me, can I talk to you two outside? And walks outside and scolds the two adults for not being woke enough and understanding if you could just use your eyes and your heart, you would see that little Bailey is actually a girl. Right? Because adults don't understand. Kids do. Kids are super woke. Greta Thunberg, etc. Thunberg. Anyway, uh, where are we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Activism at the age of four. <laughs> Kidding me? This is a video of uh, someone talking to an epist epist uh, epistemological justice college student. And this is amazing. This is postmodernism in a nutshell right here. They could not come up with a better video to prove this. And he asks the student, uh, he gives her a box of Tic Tacs and said, can you know if there are an even or an odd number of Tic Tacs in this box? Now, you or I would say, yes, you count them. But it's not that simple, you see. It's not that simple in a postmodern world. Here's what she says, clip five. How would you go about solving that question, whether the total number of pieces in this box is either even or odd? Would you agree that it's one or the other? I No, I wouldn't. Because, again, you're operating from different understandings. You can count them, we can count them as we know numbers to exist uh -huh. in a sequence. Yeah. We could count those and say there are definitely 35 pieces in there. Okay, great. The, in, the Aztecs had the Nepal scene, 
which is an entirely different, entirely different understanding of how numbers work that would go, it's almost like too advanced. To, I don't even get it. Oh, the, the Nepo on scene scene. Oh, how racist of you to have not considered the Nepo on scene scene. You say there's 35 Tic Tacs in that container, but oh, what about, what would the Aztecs say? Huh? What would they say with their Nepo on scene scene? Go ahead. Try that to your boss when you get your paycheck. Excuse me, um, boss, I'm sorry. I, um, it seems here that you counted the hours I worked this week using your white colonial Eurocentric numbers. But according to the Aztec Nepoan scene scene and my understanding of numbers, I worked 20 hours of overtime. So I'm just going to go ahead and need that uh, extra 20 hours. And if your boss is uh, wise and not caving to the woke demands, he'll be sure to come back and say, oh, okay, fine, then your pay this, uh, this quarter is uh, one million Nepoan scenes, which with today's exchange rate is zero dollars. So, so feel free to come back next week. I'll pay you. You know what? You get a raise. Two million Nepoan scenes. And you can see how the numbers break down or the whole system breaks down, I should say. Now, this is not... Like, oh, one day, like, here's, here's a crazy, here's one crazy college student we found. That, that, that's the point I want to make. I know it seems so unbelievable, like, it's unfathomable to you. So it's like, oh, fine, Slater, filling in for Buck here, found one late, one girl who's crazy type. No, 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 no. This is not a thing later. This is a thing right now. This is the Seattle Public Schools K-12 through Math Ethnic Studies Framework. This is from the government website. This is the curriculum in thousands of schools across the country. So let me read a little bit from here. Power and oppression, as defined by ethnic studies, are the ways in which individuals and groups define mathematical knowledge so as to see Western mathematics as the only legitimate expression of mathematical identity and intelligence. That's your counting of the Tic Tacs. That's your Western mathematics. This definition of legitimacy is then used to disenfranchise people and communities of color, like those who count in Nepawan scene scenes. This erases the historical contributions of people and communities of color. That is so, so ridiculous. Tell that to Katherine Johnson of NASA. You've seen the movie, of course, Hidden Figures. You have to about her and, and other black female computers, uh, mathematicians. They literally computed. They were computers. Tell, tell them that math disenfranchised them. That's what it says. That, like Western math erases the historical contributions of people and communities of color. Far from math disenfranchising Katherine Johnson, math empowered her. It didn't disenfranchise her. It empowered her to play a fundamental role in getting us to the moon and therefore the, the history. How sad is it to, to tell black kids, oh, you can't know this. You can't know this. This is a white man's thing. This, and actually, counting and 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's a, that disenfranchises you. As opposed to, hey, here's some amazing black mathematicians, or just mathematicians. Let's use this knowledge to get ahead in life. Students will be able to identify how math has been, uh, has been and continues to be used to oppress and marginalize people and communities of color. Uh, here are some questions. Do, 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 do. What is my mathematical identity? Is there an authority for math knowledge? This is Seattle. 
How important is it to be right? What is right? Says who? Who holds the power in a mathematical classroom? Again, that's the teacher-student oppression system. Is there a place for power and authority in the math classroom? Who gets to say if an answer is right? How does data-driven processes prevent liberation? Who is doing the oppressing? That's a great point. Like, it assumes it's happening, right? How can we use math to measure the impact of activism? Everyone's an activist, even eight-year-olds, even four-year-olds. How can we change mathematics from individualistic to collectivist thinking? I mean, this is right there. Like, I'm not... This is right now. This isn't some dystopian future. If we keep going down this path, then things will get this bad. This is right now. This is the approved curriculum at the Seattle School District and thousands of others across the country. You drop your kids off at this place, think they're going to math class? They're not. They're getting much more than that. Where did this come from? And what do we do? Talk about that next. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. I host uh, afternoons in uh, San Diego. Uh, so what, we're talking about this postmodern math and Marxist math and all this stuff. Where did this come from? Right, I got five minutes. I'll explain it here. It's called deconstruction. You'll hear this a lot. You'll hear people, activists say, we need to disrupt or disturb or um, deconstruct the system or whatever. So deconstruction comes from this uh, philosopher back in the 60s. His name was Jacques Derrida. I'm giving him a, like, the best, most grace-filled interpretation ever of his definition of deconstruction. But the objective is to break something down to its individual parts so that you can understand it at a uh, better level. Right? So tear it down to its individual parts so that you can deeper understand, more deeply understand it. Example would be your car. You have a car. I own a car. I don't really know how it works. But if I broke it down and someone helped me put it back together... I would have a much deeper understanding of how the car works. You can do it with everything, like George Washington. We have a concept of George Washington, but if you broke down George Washington into his individual parts and uh, you know his experiences and his, his childhood and his dad dying and the family that sort of adopted him and, and all these different things, then you would have a deeper, and you put it back together, you would have a full, more full understanding of George Washington. The problem with postmodernists is that they take in this idea of deconstruction and they break things down to their individual parts, not to provide more clarity, but to make things more confusing and therefore unknowable. What is math? So they muddy the waters and they confuse people so they can come in and say, well, that's just your understanding. So who is even really to know? Let's play uh, the next clip here, Mark. So one minute and nine seconds after she was asked, can you determine if there's an even or an odd number of candies in this box? Okay. A minute and nine seconds after talking about Nepal one scene scene and it's your understanding and who can really know, blah, blah, she says this. To bring this to your definition of the word truth then, how would you, how would you look at this box of candies? It's understandings of experience. It's understandings, um, yeah, it's understandings of experiences from perspectives like it's not is it true that the Europeans conquered this land yes is it true that they they came into Mexican territory and 
completely disregarded a treaty? Yes, those things are true. But that's not the truth that we're taught in school. So you can ask any, you know, anyone who's not into these critical studies. What we know as truth is not true. It was, it's their narrative. Amazing, right? So, of course, the hypocrisy of, well, her version of history is true. So truth exists for her, but for no one else. All right, so the white man stole Mexican land. That's definitely true. But nothing you know or could ever say is true. But why is she even bringing this up? Right? Like, why is she talking about, like, she was asked about, this is super important. She was asked, how many, can you even know if there's an even or an odd number of Tic Tacs in this box? And a minute and nine seconds later, she's talking about white people stealing land from Mexico? What are you, what are you why? How can she, why would she move from a very simple, clear, and objective question, how many candies are in this box, and then talk about something that's way more complex and dynamic and like civilization versus civilization? Why, are we, why is she doing this like huge, vague, and complicated thing? Why? Because if she can take it from something simple and clear and turn it into this big, massive, vague, complicated thing, she can then make the claim, well, you know, does truth even exist? Who's now to say how many pieces of candy are in that box? So it's not an actual argument. It's a trick to try to win an argument. Make something super, to deconstruct it to big, make it bigger, vague, more complex, more, way more than it even needs to be. Just so you can insert, muddy the waters, just so you can insert uh, enough confusion into it. And you can say, well, you know, who's really to know? And people are falling for it. Modern art's a perfect example of this. We have uh, centuries of beautiful art. Right? Like things like David and Michelangelo, Pieta, like a beautiful piece of art. And then you have modern art. Modern art was designed specifically, purposefully, intentionally to deconstruct the meaning of art. What is art? Who's to say what's beautiful? What is beauty? And then someone just slaps some paint on a canvas or stacks up some rocks or goes number one on a statue of Jesus. And we're supposed to believe that this is beautiful and people fall for it. But the reason they do that is to deconstruct the concept of beauty. And if you can tear down the concept of math, and if you could tear down the concept of gender, if I may, you could tear down every objective truth that exists. Those are the biggies, math and gender. Those are the two big objective pillars of objective truth. The progressives tear those down. What do you got left? Well, it's up to you if you want to drop your kids off at that building. And this is where COVID comes in. If Trump can make this happen, where he can give a voucher to every parent, $10,000, $15,000, whatever it costs per student for your kid to go to school, and you get a check in the mail for that much money that you can use on your kid's education, what an, instead of sending him to school anymore because of COVID, what an absolute game changer that would be. And we can finally stop this madness once and for all. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton, The Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Slater, not Buck Sexton. Uh, but Buck's going to be back tomorrow. Uh, I host the afternoon shows out in San Diego. Buck and I have worked together for years. We worked together on the Blaze Radio a while back. We work together now on the first TV. 
We're on the same radio station out in, in San Diego. We're always following each other around. It's an honor to be here in the Freedom Hut. And, and thank you, Buck, again. He'll be here tomorrow. Uh, we've talked a lot of philosophy today. Talked a lot of Marxism. Talked Jacques Derrida, Rousseau, all these people. Because they, they explain why we're here. If you look around, it seems like chaos, and it is, but if you can understand where it came from, like the philosophical roots of where it came, come, it came from, it makes perfect sense what you're seeing. As chaotic as it is. Uh, I maybe should have done this in the, in the first hour uh, of the show, but better late than never. Let's, let's give this a whirl. We'll try to do this. Uh, it's kind of hard to do on the radio, but Buck's audience can handle it. The big takeaway here, I just want, if, if you can walk away with this, this would be a great success, that there is an institutional and philosophical foundation for everything that we're seeing today. Black Lives Matter, Portland and Seattle, cancel culture, the woke cult, right? This is not out of nowhere. This stuff has been building for, for decades. I, I, you could go back to Marx, you go back to Hegel before that, uh, the 1930s Frankfurt School, postmodernists of the 60s, like it all builds up to this. And it's all very, very purposeful. So let's, let's do a quick philosophy 101 overview. All right, start the clock. Let's do this. Uh, it's from Paul Maroney, uh, a little philosophy 101. There's five questions that, are, uh, that we try to answer in philosophy. First, what is the nature of reality? Second, how do we know the things we know? So what's the nature of reality? How do we know the things we know? Number three, what does it mean to be human? Number four, how should I live my life knowing these things? And number five, how should we organize society? Those are the five big questions of philosophy. Each of those questions has a different field of study, a different sub-discipline in philosophy that tries to answer each of the questions. So what's the nature of reality? That's metaphysics. How do we know the things we know? That's epistemology. What does it mean to be human? That's human nature. Uh, how should I live my life? That's ethics. And then how should we organize society? That's politics. Cool. There's three main eras that are noteworthy here. Obviously, there's a ton more we could do. This is a super broad overview, but uh, there's three main eras. You have pre-enlightenment, enlightenment, and then we'll call it postmodern. So pre-enlightenment, uh, everything prior to the 1600s, 1700s, enlightenment, 1700s, and then postmodernism is where we are today. So pre-modern, let's answer these questions. What's the nature of reality before the enlightenment? Well, you had the natural realm and then the supernatural realm. Humans on earth, God an angel in heaven, devil down below. This is the nature of reality, this metaphysics. How do we know? Bible. Again, there's a ton here, I'm skipping over it, but for the sake of this conversation, the proof of what we know uh, is the Bible. What does it mean to be human? Well, man's created in the image of God. And you are born with original sin. That is a completely worldview game changer if you believe that versus what we'll get to next with the Enlightenment. Uh, number four, ethics. How should you live your life? You should live your life in an altruistic way. Serve and love others. Serve and love your neighbor, your church, and God. And then five, uh, politics. Uh, well, the king protects the people. People work for the king. That's the political arrangement, pre-modern. Then comes the Enlightenment. 16, 1700s, by 1791, which is when our Constitution and Bill of Rights was ratified, all five of these questions had completely different answers. Totally different worldviews. First, metaphysics. There is no God anymore. The natural world is all we have. That alone will change everything. 
how do we know what we know? Well, we moved away from the Bible. Obviously, that's not a source of authority anymore. We moved away from the Bible into reason and objectivity. So there was this idea that universal truth exists, and this is important. At least, the, at least the Enlightenment people believed that there is truth and that we can realize it through logical and, and empirical inquiry. Empirical means you can see, touch, hear, feel, smell it. So we know it through reason and objectivity and science. Human nature is a blank slate. You're not born original sin anymore. You're now born a blank slate. Tabula rasa. This is Rousseau. Uh, you're not born with any innate nature whatsoever. You are entirely created by the experiences around you, and everything, therefore, is a social construct. I disagree with that. But anyway, number four, uh, ethics. So way more individualism. Each person is autonomous, sovereign. You have moral agency. This led to individual rights and private property, and then led to politically five, uh, constitutionalism, republicanism, and capitalism. So that was enlightenment. There's good and bad. I want to be clear about that. Now, I'm not saying all the Enlightenment's good. not saying all of it's bad. There's good and bad with all of it. But this all leads us to postmodernism today. You can call it anti-Enlightenment. Number one, metaphysics. The nature of reality. Well, postmodernists, they don't believe in the supernatural. That's for sure. Although postmodernists do tend to be very like astrology, tarot cards and stuff like that, right? But there's no God, certainly. So I don't believe in that supernatural, but to them, there's also no natural world. To the postmodernist, all questions about reality are a complete waste of time. There is no such thing as reality. How do we know the things we know? Well, there's no Bible, and there's also no logic or science or reason. In fact, because there's no reality, there's no objective knowledge even to be had. Everything is subjective. There's no way to know anything. There's nothing to know, and there's no way to know it. Number three, human nature. There is no individual. You are only a member of your group identity. That defines your entire existence. Very anti-enlightenment. Anti-enlightenment is you are sovereign individual. Postmodernism is you are not an individual. You are your group identity. That's intersectionality. Uh, number four, ethics. Everything is collectivist, and everyone must be equal in all ways all the time, especially the oppressed and marginalized. Uh, if, you, if you have a couple minutes, read Kurt Vonnegut's a very short story. It's called Harrison Bergeron to see what absolute equality looks like or would look like in real life. Um, but that's ethics. Everyone has to be equal in all ways all the time. Of course, some more equal than others. And then finally, politics. Well, there is no reality. There is no objective truth. There are no universal ethics. Therefore, if you're a postmodernist, you can, you can use whatever means you want to achieve any political end you want on behalf of the oppressed. The oppressors can do no right. The oppressed can do no wrong. Because what is right and wrong anyway? And this is where we're living now. Congratulations. This, this is today. Look out the window. <laughs> this is where we are right now. So why is this postmodern framework good for these activists and for socialists, for Marxists? Because if socialism and communism's claims were irrational, right, that they claim something that's irrational, well, and, you, and you rebuke it. You're like, oh, that's an irrational thing. 
they would reject the irrationality itself. Like, oh, nothing is rational, nothing can be irrational. If their claims are immoral, they would just reject notions of universal human morality at all. If their claims are illogical, they just reject logic itself. They call it a white supremacist value. So anything they do, they can just deflect by saying, well, there's no such thing as logic, reason, truth, anyway. Morality, rationality. So they got you. You're stuck. If you play their game, of course, which is what we'll get to coming up in a little bit. You can not play the game, and then you'll be fine. But just example on race, right? If you believe truth exists and can be known through logic and reason, if you believe that, if you believe that truth exists and can be discovered through logic and reason, then you are racist. So they'll call you a racist. And if you say you're not a racist, well, that's a truth claim. And that's racist white epistemology. So no matter what you do in this philosophy, you're racist. Even if you're an ally, you're still in the white identity group, you're racist. This is what white fragility is, and you've heard this by now. Uh, you are racist. You're born racist. So there is a little bit of original sin there. Uh, you're born racist. Nothing you can do about it. You can either admit it, or if you deny it, that's proof of your racism. So you're trapped either way. Good old double bond. This has... Again, you go back to Hegel, who influenced Marx, who influenced the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s, which led to the postmodernists' American universities in the 60s. Uh, where did the 60s radicals go? They went into academia. They branched out into every academic department in the university, in particular the teaching colleges that teach teachers. And now those teachers are teaching teachers who are teaching your kids. And it is everywhere. I can tell you where it is in California, but that's obvious. It's crazy California where I live, of course. In 2018, the Texas State School Board approved the first statewide course in ethnic studies. People freaked out, as they always do. And then these postmodernists, they're smart. And they're like, well, we're not going to have an elective, although they do have like an ethnic studies course. It's still a thing. But also, they're going to just infuse it into the entire K-12 through curriculum in every single study. This is as the, um, there's a postmodern philosopher, uh, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci. Uh, maybe you've heard of the long march through the institutions. He's the guy who came up with this. This guy's a avowed Marxist communist. Um, he called it the long march through the institutions. So the goal is long term to infiltrate every single institution in America, infuse this ideology into everything, and destroy every institution from within. And that's what you see everywhere it's the long march through the institutions it's entirely purposeful and it's going perfectly according to plan i want to give you an example of it next we'll talk about critical grammar at uh, rutgers university we'll do that next i'm mike slater filling in for buck sexton buck sexton show spread the word you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast Hey, Slater Crusaders, Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck will be back tomorrow. So earlier we spent a ton of time talking about Marxism and postmodern math and how there's no such thing as math. Two plus two equals, well, who are you to say? What, what are numbers and all that stuff? What about the Aztecs and their Nepawansin scene and their lived experience of how they perceived numbers and all this nonsense, right? 
And the left does this to tear down all objective truth. I'd say the two most objective truths are gender, and we see how they've tearing tear that down, right? You got you can men competing in women's sports, no such thing as gender, transgenderism, et cetera, et cetera. And then math. These are I mean, these are objective truths. And if they can tear down these two pillars, then what else can possibly stand? Now there's another one I'll throw there as well. Uh, and the the Rutgers University English Department is taking their aim at this. Rutgers University is the state um, state system in uh, New Jersey, which now apparently ceases to be a university, right? But They've uh, pledged to decolonize the writing center. So the de decolonize. The chair of the English department sent out an email with lists of all the ways that they're going to, quote, contribute to the eradication of systemic inequalities facing black, indigenous, and people of color. And one way they're going to do that is incorporating critical grammar into their pedagogy. Pedagogy is uh, just the way they teach. So critical grammar. Critical means, uh, so critical race theory. Critical theory is the umbrella philosophy of all this. And then there's critical race theory, critical gender theory, et cetera. Critical grammar is one of Critical just means to just to tear down. Tear down, destroy, get rid of. As we talked about deconstructionism from Jacques Derrida in the last hour. Anyway, critical grammar. Uh, this approach challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should limit emphasis on grammar and sentence level issues so as to not put students from multilingual, non-standard, academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage. Now, I read it quickly, but that sentence is not written properly. <laughs> okay, the, I, I'm, not, I'm not a nitpicky grammar guy. That's why I'm in radio, right? I'm a free-flowing. Right? I don't have to worry too much about proper grammar sentence syntax structure in the radio world but if you're the chair of the english department and you're talking about critical grammar you're not like she screwed up so the word that is a relative pronoun which is in this sentence is supposed to refer back refer to the traditional dogma so she's she said this she wrote the sentence incorrectly which is why grammar matters what the chair of the English department meant to write was this approach, like our approach, challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should put emphasis on grammar, which we believe puts students from multilingual, non-standard academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage. Like, that's a proper sentence that she didn't bother. Anyway, grammar matters. Grammar matters for the love of Pete so that we can communicate clearly with each other. You have ideas, you want to express them so that other people can understand them and understand what you're thinking. If we can't do that with each other, then there's no communication. But the left doesn't want that. They just want you to obey. Now the real root of all this is these people have no proper ideas. But if they can prevent you from even speaking with each other, George Orwell style, and they don't even have to debate these ideas because you have nothing to debate with. You have no words to use to debate. Now, in the meantime, can you think of a, of a worse thing that you can do to a child, especially, a, like a, let's say you take a black kid. Is there something worse you can do to a black kid than to tell them you don't have to show up on time because that's a white supremacist value. That's white culture showing up on time. You don't have to write properly. Because that's a white person thing. And really, you can't show up on time. You can't write properly because you're black. You shouldn't even be expected to. 
And then when you're not successful in this world, you can blame white supremacy and not the actual racist who purposefully failed to equip you with the tools necessary to live a successful life. Can you think of something more toxic and harmful to do to a kid than what the progressives are doing right now to kids all across the country, students of color all across the country? But just like, what is math? Same thing here, what is language? This is Evergreen State where a lot of this stuff really took hold. Tutors are there, this is uh, Brett Weinstein's former school, tutors are there to provide culturally sensitive feedback on writing, though not to correct grammar. So culturally feed, it's culturally sensitive. No, we're not going to correct grammar. In our English classes, we're going to be culturally sensitive, which is code for don't correct black kids' writing. Because what are words? Absolute poison. All of these ideas have consequences, and we are living them now, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, Good news is, you don't have to play this game. You are in charge of your kid's education. I know we've outsourced it to the state for a long time, assuming best of intentions. They don't have good intentions anymore. You are in charge of your kid's education. You are in charge of the culture of your home. You don't have to buy into this garbage. You don't have to drink this poison or let your kids drink it either. I want to get some positive stuff coming up next. I think we spent two and a half hours <laughs> trying to be aware of where this all came from. But let's focus now on what we can do instead. My name is Mike Slater. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Mike Slater. From San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton today. Buck will be back tomorrow. Thanks, Buck, for letting me be in the Freedom Hut today. Read the other day, a uh, mom uh, said that her black son is doing the best form of protest possible. Best form of protest. Going to work so that he can earn money to go to college. And she is so proud of him. I would argue you don't need to go to college now, but that's not the point. Right the second, the point is going to work. Working hard, improving yourself to go back to the very first hour of the show, the concentric circles from Jordan Peterson. But that person who's going to work and doing what he should do, he's not going to get any attention. This is how the media fans the flames. They give the attention to the rioters, which just incentivizes more rioting. And we don't give any attention or accolades to the people who are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Ryan Holiday, one of my favorite writers, love him. He wrote a blog piece a while back. And uh, it's called The Most Successful People Are the Ones You've Never Heard Of and Why They Want It That Way. And one of the points is you lose a lot in your quest for fame and recognition. Alexander the Great, he died at 32. <laughs> Joseph Kennedy. I'm quoting here, Joseph Kennedy, who created a multi-generational legacy of powerful, brilliant children, also lobotomized his own daughter because she couldn't quite measure up. And what of the countless successful people who lost their privacy, spouses, or youth in the pursuit of dominance in some sport or business or politics? What of those who kept reaching and reaching after the, they had success and destroyed everything they built with that final overstretch? 
I share this because if there's someone whose success you envy, it doesn't have to be a super rich celebrity, it could be someone at your work or something, right? You envy their success and recognition because you've sold more of this or more widgets or you have more articles written about you or you make more money or, or, they, or they, excuse me, they more, make more money, they have more widgets, they have more cars, they have a bigger house, whatever. I know you've thought, I've thought, everyone's thought it before, oh, they're the lucky ones. Is that true? Maybe you're the lucky one. The Jim Carrey line, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. And in our world today, we're being told over and over again from every single angle that this is the answer. Fame, money, accolades, and the lengths that people will go to get them. They'll go through evil lengths to get the fame and accolades, and they... they they'll mistake accolades for actually doing something. They'll post on Twitter or whatever about how wonderful they are for this, this belief without ever actually doing anything to help that cause. How many of these people who are rioting and protesting for Black Lives Matter have ever actually volunteered to help kids? None of them! But they're mistaking the accolades with the actual work. read an article about a guy who, who used to be a member of the social media mob, the Twitter mob. He was one of the guys who would go out and attack people. And then he said something that offended the mob, and then the mob came after him, lost his job, and he since quit social media, and now he delivers pizza. And you're thinking, oh man, what a, what a bad trajectory for this guy. He loves it. Why? He said, it's led me to rediscover how to interact with people in the real world. I'm a kinder and more respectful, per, respectful person now that I'm not regularly on social media attacking people for not being kind and respectful. Real life is better than fake life. It's a theme I, I say on my show all the time. Real life is better than fake life. This guy was living a fake life, and he was successful financially in the midst of it. But now he has less money, but he's happier. Why? Because real life is better than fake life, even with less money. Sia, the singer, she said, if anyone besides famous people knew what it was like to be a famous person, they would never want to be famous. Epictetus, philosopher, ancient philosopher, um, he said, he wrote, live in obscurity. There was a French philosopher many years later who said, uh, he had a French, French saying, in order to, that's a, that's a spot on. You can Google translate that, but in order to live happily, live hidden. A better way of saying this is the very first segment of the show. Work on your concentric circles. You can go back and listen to the podcast to get the full thing, but as Jordan Peterson, we played my favorite Jordan Peterson clip. This video has only got 6,000 views. I don't know why it doesn't have 6 million. It's my all-time favorite Jordan Peterson clip. And he talked about, instead of, Focusing on these huge, giant, global issues. Focus on yourself first. And work out from there. Yourself, your family, your community, your country, then the human race, and then the planet. But so many progressives go from the outside in with disastrous consequences. Work on yourself first. I remember in the beginning of COVID, I talked to uh, the barbershop owner in Michigan who opened up really quickly in the whole thing, and he was shut down, and then opened again, and they shut him down, and like arrested him, all this stuff. I remember I talked to him on my TV show, and, and he said, uh, I never wanted this. 
He said, I was as famous as I ever wanted to be. People search for the fame and the accolades on social media without putting the work in. And kids today are told that hard work is a white supremacist value. But this doesn't have to be true in your home. This doesn't have to be the lesson that you give your kids. It's getting from culture everywhere, but it doesn't have to be the lesson you give. I'll tell you a story. 1975, there was a guy, he's 23, his name was Bill, uh, unemployed, had a job as an assistant coach on a football team, but he, um, it fell through, so he didn't have a job. He wrote 250 letters to college and professional football coaches all across the country. He just needed a chance. And he got one. Got one. <laughs> Unpaid job, which is like, like, is that even a job? Like an internship for the Baltimore Colts. The Colts needed someone who could do one part-time job that everyone hated, analyzing game film. And back then, it was actual film, like, like projector film, cumbersome, frustrating, like had to cut it, like actually cut and tape the film back together. So it was monotonous. Did I say it was unpaid? It was just grunt work. But he decided to be the best at it. And he wanted to be the best at precisely what others thought they were too good for. And all the coaches eventually took notice. They said he was like a sponge taking it all in, listening to everything. One coach said you give him an assignment, he would disappear into the room. You didn't see him again until it was done, and then he wanted to do more. Hustle and hard work. But here's the most important part. It wasn't just the, the, the thankless work. It was the fact that he would do the work, get some insight, some valuable insight, give it to other coaches. They would use it, and he never wanted the credit. He didn't care about the credit. He, he just did the work. And this is opposite today. Today, our culture says, don't do any work and try and go get all the credit, <laughs> right? Post whatever you need to post in order to get constant nonstop accolades with no work. Hans Feeney, uh, who's one of my favorite people on Twitter, the pastor, years ago, he wrote this thing called Selma Envy. And it's this article about why the millennials took over the gay rights cause as their civil rights issue. And it said it's because growing up, these kids, millennials were taught, like, here are the civil rights icons. These are the great heroes of the world. You need to go out and do that. So they did, but the problem was millennials, so narcissistic, didn't want to actually do anything. <laughs> so they took up the gay rights cause. It was perfect. It didn't require any financial sacrifice because gay people had money. It didn't require any moral consistency. Right? So you could still live your life however you wanted to. And it didn't require you actually do anything. You could just change your avatar on your Facebook or whatever, your Twitter profile, and then boom, you get credit for actually doing something. So that's why the gay rights movement was perfect for millennials. It didn't require any work, but you get tons of credit, tons of accolades. That's our culture today. I'm not going to go into a whole rant here because I want to do something next, but I've been hearing so many people suing or threatening to sue or just whining and complaining on the internet about how their bosses are mean. Like, I can't, like, oh, my boss, uh, he never listened to my ideas. Like, get, get over yourself. Are you kidding me? The LA Times wrote this whole article about how this uh, talent agency in LA was racist 
because uh, they, they uh, interviewed three black women who used to work for the talent agency who said they were racist. And one of the women, well, they were all ridiculous, but one of them was, he didn't listen to my ideas. And of course, blamed her race. And the thought that maybe you're not a good employee and you have bad ideas never crossed her mind. Oh, but he was mean. Okay, maybe your boss was too busy to coddle your feelings at that moment. Get over yourself. But our society, we've been preaching this backwards work ethic for so long, and social media is just reinforcing it. And if you didn't figure it out, that Bill was Bill Belichick. Six-time Super Bowl winning, you know, probably greatest coach today. So he didn't look for the accolades first. He did the work first. Accolades came. Now you know the rest of the story. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton, Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for having me today. I hope I can do it again with you. One buck's gone. Um, Let me end here. Booker T. Washington. You have to read his book. It's called Up From Slavery. He was a slave until he was nine years old. Tells his whole story. It's autobiography about then going to work in the salt mines and then doing everything he could to get an education. The lengths that he went to get an education. And then... There's so many people today juxtapose that with kids today who have the whole world at their fingertips, education-wise, and just squander it away. It's unbelievable. Booker T. Washington will be freaking out on all of us today. But in his book, he tells a story of, of traveling 500 miles to go to this school called Hampton that he really wanted to go to. And, and on his first uh, night, he tried to stay at a hotel, and the person wouldn't let him stay because he was black. And let me just quote here. He said, my whole soul was so bent upon reaching Hampton, the school, that I did not have any time to cherish any bitterness towards the hotel keeper. Compare that to today. How many people are just bitter, 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 nonstop over like the tiniest little, like nothing compared to what this former slave Booker T. Washington put up with. But I love this story. He says, I walked the the streets till midnight. At last, I became so exhausted that I could walk no longer. I was tired. I was hungry. I was everything but discouraged. At just about the time when I reached extreme physical exhaustion, I came upon a portion of the street where the board sidewalk was considerably elevated. And I waited a few minutes until I was sure that no passers-by could see me. And I crept under the sidewalk, and I lay for the night upon the ground with my satchel of clothing for a pillow. Nearly all night I could hear the tramp of feet over my head. Next morning he wakes up, and he goes to the nearby docks, and he, he begs the captain to let him unload the, the, the boat in order to get some money. And the captain said, yes. He says, I worked long enough to earn money for my breakfast. And it seemed to me, as I remember it now, to have been the best breakfast that I've ever eaten. And years later, he went back to Richmond. This is Richmond, Virginia. He went back to Richmond to give a speech. He said, the reception was held not far from the spot where I slept the first night I spent in the city. And I must confess that my mind was more upon that sidewalk that gave me shelter than upon the recognition, agreeable and cordial as it was. Amazing. Like Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, these men did not have bitterness in their hearts towards their slave owners. But today, we're supposed to be bitter about the legacy of slavery? These guys weren't even bitter about being slaves. 
And talk about self-reflection with uh, concentric circles, starting with you in the beginning. Please read this book. It's a biography of Josiah Henson. He was the, the inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin, which sparked the Civil War. Incredible story. Josiah Henson is called New Dawn. He went to his first church service. First church service. Not only after his first service was he so acutely aware of the spiritual evils of slavery, but also it revealed to him the faults in his own life, his own pride and ego and arrogance and selfishness. Oh, Josiah Henson, as he was a slave, had a spiritual awakening personally. He had constant personal reflection as he was a slave. But today we're supposed to always believe it's someone else's fault. Never my fault. It's the legacy of slavery's fault. And even Josiah Henson didn't have that conclusion. Amazing to me. All right, I got a minute here. We got to get back to our virtues in America. George Washington, virtue and morality is a necessary spring of popular government. Human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. Benjamin Franklin, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. I love this quote, James Madison, to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. Chimerical, so a chimera was a half lion, half goat with a serpent's tail. Like a ridiculous thing. A ridiculous thing. That's how absurd the idea of a government that secures liberty and freedom is without a virtuous people. It's half lion, half goat with a serpent's tail. Uh, Sam Adams, neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. He, therefore, is the truest friend of liberty, of his country, who tries the most to promote its virtue. And I'll end with this one, John Adams. We have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. We, so in other words, we need religion and morality to bridle the passions of our fallen uh, selves, which goes back to the, uh, I think it's the top of this hour, talking about the... A timeline overview of pre-enlightenment, enlightenment, and postmodern values. And there's John Adams speaking of the pre-enlightenment, original sin. Avarice, ambish, uh, ambition, revenge, gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale through a net. Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The two things that stand out to me here are, first of all, the onlyness of it. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And then also the absurdity of the thought that you could not be virtuous. It's, it's a chimera. It's, it's a half lion, half goat, serpent's tail. It's like a whale going through a tiny fishnet. Virtue, personal responsibility, virtue. It's our only hope and pack. It's not politics. We've got to do that. We've got to play the game. We've got to win the elections. There's no doubt about that. But it's more than that. It's culture. And culture is really personal. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Spread the word.